You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 84. This week, I would like to thank listener Henry for supporting the podcast on Patreon, where he now gets access to special Patreon-only episodes, like the massive four-part series on cavalry during the First World War. You can also become a supporter over at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. So far this year, we've only talked about one of the four massive battles that would occur in 1916, which was of course Verdun, I guess it's been a couple months now. There were three other large offensives that would all be launched during 1916, and the last half of this year's episodes will be spent mainly concerned with the last three of these offensives, with the Somme and the Asanzo coming later, because right now we're going to be talking about the Brusilov Offensive. Unlike every other major offensive that I know of from the war except for one, this is actually named after the general that launched it instead of the location that it was occurring. This is due partly to the fact that General Alexei Brusilov is considered to be by far the best Russian commander of the war, but also because it is his specific blueprints that would be used in the attack to great effect. The overall effects of the coming offensive were massive and it would include the best months of fighting for the Russians for the entire war. It would relieve some of the pressure at Verdun, with the German high command forced to move troops to the east. It would thin out some of the reinforcements available for the defense of the Somme that would be launched a month later. And finally, it would cause Conrad to cancel his dreams of more large attacks in Italy, thinning out the line on the Asanzo in the process. Essentially, the Brusilov Offensive was a critical piece of the 1916 puzzle, so we're going to talk about it. And with that build-up, what are we going to be talking about over the next several episodes? Well, today we will be catching up on the situation in the Russian army in early 1916. We will then talk a bit about who Brusilov was and his experience up to this point in the war. We will then spend the last half of this episode discussing the attack that would be launched by Russia in March 1916 that would be a precursor to the attack in the south in June. The story of this attack will then bubble out into the next several episodes, and we will look at what was happening to Austria-Hungary in early 1916, and then spend about three episodes tracking the progress of the effort by the Russians. As with everything in 1916, while it will start with a bang, it will sort of drag out and end with a whisper. 
So strap in and prepare for what is sure to be an interesting ride. It has been quite a while since we have discussed Russia. As I look back through the episodes this year, I think it's all the way back in episode 61, which was the 1916 preview episode, which was the last time we discussed them in any depth at all, beyond just passing mentions. With that fact in mind, I think we should probably start with a bit of a review of what had happened to Russia during 1915, just to refresh everyone's memory. In the summer of 1915, the Russians had suffered a disaster when the Germans and Austrians had attacked all, all along the front in Poland. The Russians were forced to retreat hundreds of miles, losing all of their holdings in Poland and tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of casualties. The most critical of these casualties were the huge number of officers that were either killed, wounded, or captured. These men were critical to turning the massive Russian conscript armies into a fighting force, and in many instances, there simply were no longer enough of them available. While this was certainly a problem for the army, it also presented something of an opportunity, as dark as that sounds. In other armies, who were also having serious officer problems, they were able to bring in civilians, give them some concentrated training, and then turn them into very competent leaders. This also brought new ideas and new mindsets into the army, which while often not altering the situation at a high level, divisions and armies were still commanded by professional soldiers, it did have effects at the front and in the trenches. This was also something that was happening in Russia to some extent, but it was more with young junior officers who were able to shed the crushing weight of tradition and bring their new ideas and fresh thoughts into ever higher levels of the officer corps as they were promoted out of necessity. While this was a good trend for the Russian army, it also was resisted by many commanders who were more likely to promote older, less competent regular soldiers instead of their more competent and energetic colleagues, especially if they were not in the army before the war. This was problematic and probably hampered the general effectiveness of Russian units on a small scale, but it also held it back on a larger scale as well. From the very top of the Russian command structure, down to many divisional commanders, there was a problem in the Russian army. And that problem was that they were only learning about half of the lessons that they should have been from the fighting that was happening in the war. They saw that they needed a manpower superiority in their attacks. This was never a Russian problem. And that they needed a ton of artillery. However, they did not seem to grasp the other innovations necessary to make these two sets of numbers work together. The tight timing between the artillery barrage and the infantry advance, and the ability to drop the artillery precisely on enemy positions at precisely the right time. Instead, they continued to believe that if they had enough manpower and enough artillery shells, it didn't really matter what they did with them. When they were all brought to bear, they would be successful. These ideas would be proven false during the attacks near Lake Narok, which we will discuss here shortly but the conclusions that would be drawn once again were incorrect. They believed that they did not need something different. They just needed more. And since they could not really get more than they had in the attack, then they could not do anything. Now, to be 100% fair, the first part of that statement is the exact conclusion that the British, French, Italians, and Germans would all come to. They needed more. However, the second part of that statement would be changed in their case to be, and we need to use what we have more effectively which was the part that the Russians seemed to miss. And I probably painted a very gloomy picture over the last couple minutes, but let me pull back on that a bit. 
and say that not everything was going down the toilet for Russia in 1916. To start with, the Russian army that was taking the field in 1916 was essentially an entirely new one compared to the army that had retreated from Poland. The units had been reorganized, the men were better fit and trained for war, and even the officers in general were now better prepared through forced promotions necessitated by battlefield attrition as well as mass dismissals after a year and a half of failure. Many of the other generals, the most conservative, had been removed after the disaster of 1915. This effort was spearheaded by the Minister of War, Alexei Povodinov, who now was also found himself unemployed, not due to incompetence, but apparently the Tsarina Alexandra didn't like him very much, so off he went. To go along with having a better set of men, there were also now more of them. The Russians had been easily able to make up their losses with new conscripts fresh from the training depots. This was the one thing that Russia would never have a problem with. They had a population almost double that of Germany and France combined. These men were also better equipped than at any point since 1914, and maybe better than even at that time. Many of the supply problems, at least on the macro scale, had been somewhat solved, and this meant that there was drastically more artillery and ammunition at the front, and they even, this is amazing, almost had enough rifles to give one to every man, with only about 100,000 men in the entire army not able to count on having a weapon. Finally, they were also able to catch up on the manufacturing of all the periphery of war, things that did not go boom, like bandages, barbed wire, gas masks, shoes, shirts, everything that's required to keep a man in the trenches, were now available in previously unknown quantities. This was a huge improvement, and there were now 2 million men under arms in Russia, and that number only includes frontline soldiers' fighting strength and does not take into account the massive number of support and rear area troops that all armies possessed to keep the fighting front strong. There was also one big benefit to the defeats of 1915. Sure, a lot of men had been lost, but for Russia they were replaceable. Sure, a lot of territory had been lost, but it was theoretically reconquerable. They were both downsides, but the big upside was that the retreat had drastically shortened the front that the Russians had to occupy. The Russian lines in Poland had been pushed out into a huge salient that they had to be occupied, of course. Now this was no longer a concern, and it allowed the Russians to have an even larger number of men per mile of front. Overall, the positives almost certainly outweighed the negatives, and if they could be properly utilized by someone, the Russian army was a, at a better spot than it had ever been in the war. Even this late in the game, it was sort of like what was happening for Germany, where they were sort of just reaching peak effectiveness. And this brings us to General Alexei Brusilov. Almost like I planned it that way. Nice lead-in. Alexei was born in Tbilisi, Georgia in 1853. At this point in history, Georgia was part of the Russian Empire. He came from a family with a long history of military service to the Russian state, dating all the way back to his great-grandfather, who had been in the army under Peter I. As Brusilov moved into his teenage years, it was almost inevitable that he would continue this tradition and join the army as well, and this in fact occurred when he was at the ripe old age of 14. His first taste of action would come in the Russo-Turkish War of 1877, one of the several times that the centuries-long antagonism between Russia and Turkey would result in conflict. 
1881, he would then become one of the instructors at the Cavalry Officers School in St. Petersburg, just one of the many Allied commanders who would have their roots in the cavalry. While this is often something that is seen as a negative, especially when discussing the British commanders on the Western Front, generally in the 1800s, the cavalry attracted the most adventurous, bold, and intelligent officers, which is why so many would be in leadership positions during the war, not because they'd spend a bunch of time in the saddle. I could probably go on for, I don't know, about three hours about this, but you can listen to that in the Patreon episodes. Back to Brusilov, who would next see action in the Russo-Japanese War, where he would find himself in command of a division. During the war, he did not do anything incredible, but he led his division well and received a promotion after the war. After the Russo-Japanese War, he would become somewhat well-known for his ruminations on the failure of the Russians during the war. This was a hotly discussed topic, as all great military failures are. And Brusilov found himself among the droves, trying to figure out a way to make sure it did not happen again. To this end, he was put in command of a corps in the Warsaw Military District, which he would begin command of in 1909. Over the next five years, he would lead many war games in his area of responsibility, which gave him good knowledge of the terrain on which the Russian army was about to be fighting a war. When the war started, Brusilov quickly made a few observations, the first of which was that cavalry was definitely ill-suited for the battlefield of 1914, and it would not play a role in any of his future attacks. Over the first year and a half of the war, Brusilov would take the units under his command, first a corps, then an army group, and perform quite well in some very challenging situations for the Russians as a whole. This included Brusilov's men conducting a reasonably orderly retreat in 1915, which didn't happen everywhere. After this action, and the metaphorical bloodbath that would be visited upon the Russian commanders afterwards, Brusilov would be promoted and put in charge of the entirety of the southwestern front, representing a third of the front occupied by the Russians. However, it was seen as the least important, facing mostly Austrian troops, and with the previously impassable Carpathians on the south. This would be his position when the plan for 1916 was being formulated, sort of off to the side and on the least important part of the front. And he was, But he was still confident that he might be able to crack the nut that was trying to launch a successful offensive during the First World War. Nobody had figured it out yet. And he would have his chance in the future. But before that happened, the Russians had to make one more really big mistake first. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, 
and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. This mistake would be in the north, near Lake Narok. It was not an attack that was launched entirely out of the desire by the Russian leaders to launch another attack. Instead, their hand was a bit forced. This was because of the agreements that had been made at that fateful Chantilly Conference back in December 1915, where it was agreed that if any of the Allies were attacked, the others would launch attacks to try and help them out. This was an agreement that the Russians introduced and strongly lobbied for. They basically made everybody else sign it. They had felt so isolated during the summer and fall of 1915, and wanted to make sure that the British, French, and Italians were all held accountable in case the Germans and Austrians decided to have another go against the Russian armies in 1916. However, this is not what would end up being the case, and in some ways, the Russians would instead be hoisted by their own petard. This is why the planning for the Narok attack began on the 24th of February which, if you are keeping track of your 1916 calendar, was just three days after the attack at Verdun started. Since the Russians felt compelled to attack, the question was which of the three fronts should it be launched on? It was quickly narrowed down to one of the two northern fronts, both of which had almost a two-to-one advantage in manpower. It was eventually decided that the task would fall on the western front, which was the one in the middle, which I only mentioned because all of these fronts and positions I find a bit confusing. This front was commanded by General Everett. Everett was able to call upon the largest concentration of Russian artillery that had been mustered together up to this point in the war, with a thousand field guns, almost 600 howitzers, and hundreds of other calibers. These would be concentrated in an area of attack east of Vilna, where there had been some really hard fighting in 1915. In this area, the Russians were able to construct a massive superiority in artillery and also in men, with 350,000 men set to attack a German force of just 75,000. Even with this advantage, there were a few serious problems that the Russians would have to contend with, as there always is. The first was simply that the Germans would know about the attack almost two weeks before it was launched. There would be no surprises here. The second was the weather. Norman Stone would say that the weather and general conditions at this time of year were such that even if the Germans were to pick the time for the attack, the conditions could not have been worse. This was because it was early spring, and that meant that the ground had, that had been frozen through the winter was now thawing out, but it was not yet warm enough to be above freezing all the time. This put the ground in a cycle of freezing at night and thawing during the day that basically just turned it into a giant sea of mud. This included, most importantly, the roads that were so critical for any attack on the scale that the Russians were planning. The weather caused a massive confusion behind the lines, as supply convoys, groups of men, and large units of cavalry all got mixed up and slowed to a crawl as they tried to get to the front. The third and final problem for the Russians was that their positions were, in this area of the front, total garbage. In many areas, the troops did not have good positions. In some, they did not have any trenches at all. In some areas, this was due to a simple lack of preparation. 
but in others it was simply impossible due to the conditions and the marshy ground that the Russians occupied. This meant that it was going to be difficult to shelter the men before they attack, and of course it would also be difficult to protect them from the German artillery that was sure to rain down upon them as they moved forward. The attack would begin on March the 18th. The artillery hammered away for what should have been long enough to accomplish something, but there were a few reasons that this was not the case. The first was that the guns had serious problems hitting the inflating positions and communication trenches that the Germans had constructed. Generally, this was because the Russians simply did not know where these positions were. Another problem that the Russians had was simply the amount of shells available. As we have discussed on the Western Front, the number of shells required to fully neutralize enemy positions was massive, like the Germans and French were pouring so much artillery into Verdun. And it required not just a large initial stockpile, but also a continuous stream of shells to feed the guns. At Lake Narok, the mud was greatly reducing the number of shells that could be brought forward. It, and this affected both initially, you know, the initial buildup, as well as the ability of the Russians to resupply once the fighting began. Also, just as a general statement, the Russian generals believed that they needed far fewer shells than what was actually required, with some commanders believing that just 200 rounds per day per gun was enough for the bombardment to be effective. Finally, there was little coordination present between the artillery and the infantry. This is at a time when in the West there was a huge amount of thought going into trying to combine the powers of the two military arms, which even though they were not always successful at, they were going in the right direction, and they were trying really hard. The Russians were not even trying at all. In fact, in some areas, the artillery commanders and infantry commanders never even met to discuss the plan in any real capacity. Instead, they just vaguely communicated based on some maps that were all often not even incorrect and sometimes not even the same. This created a recipe for disaster, and as it turned out, that's exactly what happened. On his front, General Pleshkov thought that it would be sufficient to just focus his artillery on 2 kilometers of his 20 kilometer front, even though he was attacking on the 20 kilometers. And when the men on these 2 kilometers actually did go forward, they saw some success, but they unfortunately just found themselves in a giant kill box, with Germans occupying strong positions on three sides. Only on this very narrow front were Pleshkov's men successful, and everywhere else they were stopped in their tracks. Pleshkov's corps would lose 15,000 men in just eight hours. Pleshkov was not the only man commanding a corps that was sent forward, but the others didn't attack until the 21st. Pleshkov would send his men forward again as well, with the same amount of success. And to the south, there was much the same, with 10,000 casualties with the second corps. It was only in the third and final corps, under the command of General Believ, where there was any sort of success at all. And go figure, it was only under his command that any attempt was made to coordinate the infantry and artillery. But even with these measures taken, there was only a small amount of success and only a few square kilometers were captured. Overall, the battle would cost the Russians around 100,000 casualties, all told. And that actually, not all told, because that doesn't include the 10,000 men who died of exposure, both before and after the actual fighting. On the other side, the Germans lost around 20,000. I should say that these numbers are a bit fuzzy. There's a lot of variance from the sources that I am seeing, which is of course par for the course on the Eastern Front, but I feel like I should probably mention it every time just so you remember. 
Regardless of the exact numbers, what's absolutely certain was that it was a complete failure on the Russian side. They had failed to gain any substantial territory, and they had also failed to pull any German forces away from the Western Front. Like, this failure was so bad that the Germans were able to just reinforce by shifting some reserves around in the east. To add insult to injury, the Germans would wait just about a month solely to wait for conditions to improve, and then they would just launch a counterattack that would recapture all of the ground that they had lost, and they would suffer very few casualties doing it. So the Russians lost a lot of men and gained absolutely nothing. The biggest effect of the attack had nothing to do with the territory or the casualties, though. Again, these didn't really matter to the Russians. The real problem was the effect on the Russian mentality. The reason for this was because the Russian generals had been trying for the entire war to get enough of what they thought they needed. And at Lake Narok, they believed that they had more than enough men in shell, but they still failed. This created the mindset that if 350,000 men, a thousand guns, and a giant mountain of shells could not produce results, what possibly could? The artillery blamed the infantry for not following through. The infantry blamed the artillery for not properly neutralizing the Germans. There were all kinds of accusations floating around, but no solutions. And this meant that a good number of Russian generals came to the conclusion that positive results were simply not possible. And therefore, over the coming year, they would do their best to resist any desire by anybody in the Russian chain of command to launch large attacks. This resistance would continue, even with the success that Brusilov was about to have, all the way until the revolution. It was this pessimism that the Russian commanders brought with them when Alexeyev summoned them to a conference on April the 14th, which also just so happens to be my birthday. The purpose of this meeting was to discuss another attack that was to take place in the late spring or early summer. Alexeyev was still under pressure from the British and French to launch another attack, even after the failure at Narok. And because of this, he asked his three front commanders if this was possible. Alexeyev favored another attack in the north, spearheaded this time by the northern front, under the command of General Kuropotkin. However, he would claim that, quote, it is quite improbable that we could break through the German front, the lines of which have been strongly fortified and so developed that success is hardly imaginable, end quote. Everett pointed to his recent effort as the reason that he could not be the one to attack. It was Brusilov, who had only recently taken over for Ivanov, who had been released on the southwestern front, who volunteered for the attack. This was odd, and somewhat unexpected by the others in attendance, because it was only in the south that the Russians did not possess a massive n- numerical advantage. As I mentioned earlier, Everett had a 2-to-1 advantage. The northern front was somewhat similar. But in the south, it was almost 1-to-1. They were far less concerned about the Austrians and their ability to attack, and therefore, Brusilov's front was constantly robbed of reinforcements to pad the numbers of the other fronts. They were way more scared of the Germans, basically. In 1916, Brusilov found himself with roughly the same number of men in his armies as the ones facing him, but this did not overly concern Brusilov, and instead he was suggesting that he launch an attack on a massive front bigger than anything that had been seen before, and he also stated that his preparations were already underway, he'd be ready to go pretty soon. Alexeyev made it clear that he was not offering to provide any additional support, either manpower or material, for the proposed attack. Brusilov said he was okay. 
He's, he's got this. Don't worry about it. I don't need to alter anything. Alexiev did decide to offer Brusilov some assistance by coaxing Evert into also launching an attack at the same time, even though he didn't really want to. And keep that in mind, Evert did not want to launch this attack, which will come into play uh, here in a couple episodes. In reality, none of the generals had any real faith in Brusilov's proposed effort. Like, none at all. But the die was cast, and Brusilov now had his permission, and he went back to his generals to prepare to launch his attack, which was seen as a bit of a supporting effort at this point to the one Evert was going to launch into the north, just because Evert was going to be throwing far more men at the Germans. I think that's probably a good spot to stop this episode, so join me next week. We will talk about the specifics of what Brusilov was planning, how it was different than what had come before, and the state of the Austro-Hungarian troops that they would be running into.